Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of the hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very excited today to be interviewing Dr. Catherine Harkup about her book titled Death by Shakespeare, Snakebite Stabbings and Broken Hearts, published by Bloomsbury in 2020. This is, I mean, even from the title, right, you can tell that this is going to be an interesting book to talk about and to learn all about the kind of behind the scenes of creating the book. Um, Because it's really what this does is investigate pretty much all the different ways that Shakespeare killed off characters. And how did Shakespeare think about death? What was the context of the world and death that he was writing in? Um, And how did we sort of end up with these plays with all of these very inventive ways of people dying and being killed? So an absolutely fascinating lens through which to view Shakespeare. I'm very happy to welcome you, Catherine, to the podcast. Thank you very much for inviting me. Could you start us off, please, by introducing yourself and explaining why you decided to write this book? Uh, My name's Catherine Harkup, and I am a science communicator and writer. And the reason I chose to write this book, or I suggested to my publisher that maybe they might be interested in this book, is I have a bit of a background in writing about death and the gorier side of science, because... Back in the past, I used to talk to school kids and try to encourage them into science and engineering subjects at university. And you mentioned the word science or engineering and a good portion of your audience's eyes will close or glaze over. So instead, I would stand up in front of them and say, "Okay, I'm going to talk to you about killing people or resurrecting the dead. And they suddenly pay attention and you can sneak in some science. So I've kind of run with that theme. So I'd written about various ways of killing people with poisons, ways of resurrecting people with electricity, um, you know, around the theme of Frankenstein. And it occurred to me that someone who had written an awful lot about death and it's, um, you know, before, how, after, and in extraordinary variety and detail was Shakespeare. So I sat down with the complete works and a bunch of sticky notes and I started reading to see if there was enough material in there to uh, get a book out of it. And lo and behold, there was more than enough material to grab hold of. So I put together a proposal, uh, talked to my publisher, and they went, yeah, this sounds like good fun. Why not? <laughs> so there we are. That's how I ended up uh, writing about death and Shakespeare. Well, I think good fun is definitely a relevant descriptor. Um, and I also think more than enough material is relevant too. Um, I, as I was reading the book, I was getting into kind of the different chapters that talk about different ways um, that Shakespeare killed off characters and just marveling at how much information you must have gone through and how you were able to distill it into such a succinct description and explanation. Um, yeah, I think that's there was the biggest problem. I mean, Yes, the the complete works of Shakespeare is pretty hefty, but all the books that have been written about Shakespeare, oh my God, they they fill a library. Where do you start? Where do you stop? Hmm. 
Very good questions. Um, and in fact, I might be asking you a bit about where to start it off. <laughs> um, but I was also really interested that you don't just kind of, you know, in case anyone's worried about it, this is not a book that kind of just goes like, first play, here are the list of ways that people were killed. Second play, here are the list that people were killed. Right? No, I mean, much- there is an appendix that details that, but it is very much an appendix. It's not mm-hmm. a blow by blow, death by death account. Which- I didn't want it to be that. From a reader's perspective, I thank you for that decision. Um, And in fact, one of the things that was really interesting is that you start the book off thinking about kind of death and violence in the world that Shakespeare was living in, right? And that he's not coming up with these deaths, um, the specific deaths, obviously out of nowhere, and we'll definitely go into the detail of kind of where he got certain ideas, etc. But you also introduce us and really help us remember that the world he was living in, the world he was writing in, the world that his plays were being enacted in, um, thought about death and violence perhaps somewhat differently than we do today. So I was wondering if, especially in the context of the last few years for us, um, you might help us understand kind of what about the general context of death and how people thought about death, how people thought about violence while he was writing these plays, what impact do you think that had on what he ended up writing? I do think Shakespeare's world was a very different one. Although I have lived in the sort of environments that he worked in and produced his plays in, it, it was several centuries ago and things have changed. And certainly attitudes to death and violence in terms of not just um, you know sword fights on the street which would have been common enough but also things like capital punishment and um, you know things like that it's very very different today and in Shakespeare's world death was very much something that you could experience up close and personal on a fairly regular basis um, obviously people haven't stopped dying in the modern world but the way death is presented to us today it tends to be cleaned up um, pushed off to one side screened away so that we don't see the detail of it um, you know, we're all fascinated by death look at how popular um, crime novels are or murder mystery series on tv but you you know, even the news is full of people who have died and who have been in accidents and terrible, terrible things. But you very rarely see the body itself. You see the police tape, you see the picture of the person when they were alive. It's the sanitized version. And that's not what you would have got in Shakespeare's day. People, when they got sick, uh, they very rarely went to hospital to be treated contrary to modern times. The hospitals back then, there were very few of them, and they were mostly where people went to die. Very few people expected to leave. And it was mostly for the poor. So the rich stayed home and they were nursed at home and they had doctors visit them and prescribe things for them. And the family would look after them and friends would visit to cheer them up or to spend their last moments together. So death was something that would have been witnessed literally firsthand, by and large, by you know everyone in the population. And if you weren't upset by you know friends and relatives dying in front of you, you could go along the streets of London and you could see bodies hanging from gibbets, and you could watch a public hanging or an, a beheading uh, if you were lucky. I, I use the word advisedly. So death was very much a present thing. And although I'm sure the emotions around it were very similar, the loss of 
uh, you know, people that you loved. I think the actual witnessing of it would have been very different. So people would have known about the process of death. They would have known about the process, you know, what an axe to the neck really does. And it's pretty grim. I don't think you could have shocked uh, an Elizabethan audience when you put this kind of stuff on stage. It seems very bloody today, but I, I don't, I think it would have paled in comparison to what they could have seen just across the river uh, at Tyburn or wherever. Hmm. A very different environment um, than we might currently watch Shakespeare plays in, certainly. Um, that sort of thing is definitely not available in, I would imagine, out across the river for most theatres. Um, so I definitely, hope not. <laughs> exactly. So definitely worth keeping in mind when we investigate what he's writing about. Um, and of course, medicine, as you mentioned, was quite different, right? Hospitals were not exactly places that you went with much hope. Uh, medical treatments had a whole variety of methods, but the efficacy of any of them was questionable, probably to say the least. Um, and you show in the book that Shakespeare obviously was not the only playwright who thought about death, who killed off characters, who thought about medicine. I mean, you know, people write about what's around them, and that was very much ever present. But you do um, suggest in the book that Shakespeare went, quote, further than all his contemporaries in his portrayal of medicine. Do you have any ideas why Shakespeare seemed particularly interested in and invested in thinking about and portraying medicine and things like that on stage? I can only speculate, really, because we know so little about the author himself. But he does seem rather preoccupied with medicine. Certainly every play mentions disease, at least, and every echelon of the medical hierarchy is represented somewhere in his plays and his poems, from wise women through midwives to nurses to physicians, um, apothecaries, etc., etc. They're all there. So I can only imagine, it, and they're there... Um, much more obviously than in his contemporary playwrights' plays. So if you read um, Ben Jonson or whoever, yes, they, they, they get a mention, but they're not nearly as common or as prominent as they are in Shakespeare's plays. And possibly he was just preoccupied with this. He had a son-in-law who was a doctor, so he had someone on hand who he could talk to about you know, the realities of medical practice and what might be administered to people or prescribed to people and how diseases might progress. So he had a kind of very close source of information. But um, he was certainly writing about the medical world before um, his daughter got married. So I can only imagine it was something of a preoccupation, perhaps about his own health. Maybe he, he was a bit of a hypochondriac. Maybe he was genuinely ill and worried about the state of his, uh, his body. I, I can only speculate, but it, it is noticeable in his plays. Mm. And yet, despite that, one of the things that seems to be absent from his plays and his contemporaries is despite the consistent mention of um, medicine in his plays, disease throughout really all of the plays. Um, they don't talk about plague. Why not? No, the, the plague is, I mean, the word plague is used a lot, a, a plague on both your houses. It is used as an insult. And, um, you know, the worst insult, the worst thing that you could possibly wish on your enemy. And I th possibly, I think it's possibly down to the fact that 
plague was just too awful. It was a grim reality that your friends, your neighbours, your immediate family could be struck down very, very suddenly and die very, very quickly from this truly awful disease. And it was ever present in London and um, sometimes out in the shires as well. It was always there and it seemed to have no explanation and there was very little people could do to treat it. So um, it must have been a terrifying time. And the people who go to see Shakespeare's plays and his contemporaries' plays, I imagine they want to be entertained and they want a moment away from the grim reality of the plague and they don't need to be reminded of it on stage because they've all seen it and they know how grim it is and however good your prosthetics and your makeup is that you have on stage you're gonna get found out i'm afraid with the plague because everyone's seen it so i think it was just too awful you just don't talk about this great awfulness that's going on outside the theater walls it's a bit of escapism Mm. Definitely raises some interesting thoughts about how playwrights will deal with our current and last few years. I think it will be interesting and I'm not sure it's going to materialise in the way that we we think it will. I don't think mm. there's going to be you know gritty depictions of the reality because we've lived through it and mm. we know what it was like. So why would you dwell on that? And who knows what know. books will be Maybe written about it in 400 years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it, so he doesn't write about plague. He does write a lot about medicine and disease. Um, But of course, Shakespeare also writes about murder and rather a lot of different kinds of murder. And again, you said you mentioned them in the appendices. But I wonder if you could tell us about a few of the ones you found particularly notable. There was one that I find particularly fascinating, which is the death of Duke Humphrey, which is sold to the audience very much as a murder. Uh, Duke Humphrey has made a lot of enemies he's a very powerful influential person and to be rid of him benefits a lot of people so there are quite a few suspects as to um, you know when he's found dead in bed and people are looking at the corpse it's not unreasonable to assume that someone might have helped him on his way shall we say Um, so you have this body found in a bed and all of these people cluster around and it is like a modern detective murder mystery TV show with your forensic people around examining all of the evidence and trying to determine what happened to this person. It feels so modern that in Shakespearean um, prose, which is incredible. So they look at his disordered beard and they speculate, was it um, mussed up because someone put a pillow over his face to suffocate him? They examine the colour of his skin to see if there might be signs of bruising or, you know, he's not the right colour. They've seen dead bodies. They expect them to be pale, but his face is suffused with blood. So was he strangled? And the detail that they go into is quite extraordinary and the kind of the back and forth between certain characters of what about this oh no i think this should, it should be like this or how about this theory it's really it is like a detective drama except that everyone in the audience knows exactly who did it because a few scenes earlier we see the guy plotting it and of course yeah, like any good murder mystery, the, the guy gets his comeuppance. Not quite in the way that everyone anticipates. He's murdered by pirates, but that's a 
totally, he does get his comeuppance. So I was fascinated by this death just because of the detail and the accuracy of description of a body within the context of Shakespearean language and you know, all of these beautiful phrases that he can come up with, but we're talking about a murder. It's incredible. That is quite an entertaining picture, um, sort of everyone poking at the body and going, hang on, what's happened here? But doing all of that in Shakespearean language. Um, definitely a notable murder. In addition, though, um, Shakespeare obviously kills people, kills characters off in lots of different ways. And perhaps um, I'm probably not alone in often thinking first to his depiction um, and use in his plays of poison and poisonings. What's interesting to you about how he talks about and uses poison and poisonings in his work? I'm fascinated by poisons anyway with my background in chemistry. So I find it extraordinary that some compounds in tiny, tiny amounts can be absolutely devastating to a body. But other things you can eat by the spoonful and you're absolutely fine. If not, it's essential to your health. So what those chemicals are doing inside your body, I find fascinating. So reading about poisons in Shakespeare's work was, I was there with lots of sticky notes. Anytime anyone's looking a bit pale, their their food's a bit off, I'm there. What I found interesting about Shakespeare, this is someone who um, is known for his brilliant observations. People have speculated, oh, he must have travelled to Italy to write so beautifully about, uh, you know, to set all of these plays in Italy. He must have spent time on board ship to know all the details of the workings of a ship. He must have known this, that and the other. And, you know, the amount of information that he accumulated and wove into his Uh, plays to give them life and detail and context and richness but when it comes to poisons he gets a lot wrong and that's not a criticism because it really doesn't matter he's making this up he can do whatever he wants but he either names a poison that is a real poison so he mentions rat's bane, which is probably arsenic and wolf's bane and all sorts of other things. And they're real poisons, but then he never describes what that does to you or how it kills you. So he knows lots of names of poisons, but then on other occasions, he will describe in great detail what a poison does to a person because it's really graphic and it's really grim and it's a really appropriate ending for that particular character. And he won't name the poison. Um, so it's very difficult. I don't think he knew an awful lot about poison, but he introduced them into his work anyway, because who doesn't love a good poisoning? And I'm sure the actors in his company really did appreciate it. There's no no messing around with swords, no blood everywhere all over the costumes, and they get to be really theatrical and flounce about and have a really good death on stage that everyone pays attention to. Well, and as you point out in the book, and we've mentioned a bit already, medicine in this time period was already a whole bunch of different treatments, but not necessarily a lot of understanding about what was actually happening if you ingested this or attempted that. Absolutely. And the vast majority of things that were prescribed as medicines back in the day, we would now very much categorize as poisoned and not to be consumed, definitely to be restricted and not for human consumption. So attitudes have gone a full 180 on those things. But 
I think he certainly did appreciate that things in small quantities might be beneficial, but in uh, larger quantities could be dangerous. So, And he also appreciated that many plants had within them things that could be beneficial to health and things that could be detrimental, depending on the dosage, depending on the mixture and the composition that uh, was prescribed. So he does have some understanding, usually within a medical context, but his details of poisonings, not quite there. Interesting. Definitely interesting. So thank you for sharing that with us. Um, One area, however, that you discuss in the book that Shakespeare does seem to not only know a lot about, but maybe have, in some senses, actually maybe a more current or more modern thinking on than perhaps his contemporaries does, is suicide. Um, And I thought this was particularly interesting, given that we've, you know, we've kind of already discussed like uh, murders done by weapons would have been super realistic because everyone knew what they looked like. Whereas poisoning, there was a lot of mixed knowledge about what was actually happening. Um, and then everyone was obsessed with disease, but Shakespeare was maybe a little bit more obsessed with that. And yet suicide in a lot of ways kind of seems a little bit different from those. And certainly Shakespeare's discussion of suicide definitely seems different from his contemporaries. So can you explain to us kind of what that difference is and what you think is significant about it? Well, at the time, suicide was a criminal offence, which seems ridiculous because that person is dead. How do you punish that person further? Well, you, you would punish them by not burying them in consecrated grounds, which had significant um, implications for their soul. And you would also, because uh, of the criminal system or the punishment system at the time, because this person had committed a criminal offence, all of their possessions were forfeit to the crown. So the family that is left behind, not only have they lost a loved one, but they've also lost any of their belongings, any of their money, any of their estate. So it was really a terrible punishment that was inflicted um, on suicides, even though they're no longer here, um, no longer with us. But Shakespeare doesn't seem to take that kind of attitude, particularly in the case of Ophelia. This is clearly a woman who is very, very upset and very uh, mentally unwell. And there is a big argument over whether her death is accidental or whether it's intentional suicide. And it's not just because people want you know something to write on a death certificate or just to know the facts of what went on. It's because there's severe implications um, depending on what's decided. And the argument for me, the way I read it today, is that he's arguing, no, this was an accident. This person was clearly upset. They shouldn't be punished further. They they deserve all the sympathy that we can give them because that's what you should do for people in distress. And that's a very modern attitude that if someone has these um, terrible thoughts that we would want to intervene to help them, to keep them with us. And it's always tragic, particularly in Shakespeare, because these people who feel that they're at the end of their tether, there is nothing left for them. After they do this terrible, terrible act, things do get better. And if they just hung around for a little bit longer, they would have seen um, a a better future for them. So it strikes me as a very modern attitude that he is arguing 
for sympathy for these characters rather than you know oh they they did a, a they committed a crime they should be punished this is not what we should talk about he talks about it a lot hmm. very interesting um and definitely worth remembering kind of the idea that it's not just about supporting people that there were literally criminal implications um which does seem a bit absurd right the idea of well they it they're does not yeah, not just for the individual, but also for the family. I mean, it, it just seems like unnecessary punishment. It's mm. awful, but that was the thinking at the time. Well, in fact, you discuss in the book that there are a number of aspects of Shakespeare and deaths in Shakespeare that seem completely absurd to us today. Not necessarily just attitudes, but like actual ways of dying. But yeah. maybe some of them would have made more sense in the time period? Definitely. I think the one that really sticks out, I think for a lot of people, is the most famous stage direction perhaps ever written, which is Exit Pursued by a Bear. And it's in The Winter's Tale, which is a weird play to be going on with. Uh, Lots of strange things happen. And by the time you get to the stage where a bear just wanders on and uh, chases a character off, you're like, okay, we're just down the rabbit hole with this one. Don't know what Shakespeare was doing, but fine, we'll go with it. I think that might be a more modern attitude to it because a bear suddenly turning up on stage in Elizabethan times was much more believable. Uh, bears were a common sight in London at the time. There were bear baiting arenas. Bears were chained up, dressed up and made to dance on street corners. It is utterly barbaric by modern sensibilities. But at the time, this was considered great entertainment. And these bears, obviously, they've been tortured through their lives. And when they got loose, they took their vengeance. They would chase after people. Um, a very famous bear in London at the time was called Sackerson, immortalised forever in uh, The Merry Wives of Windsor because he gets a name check, uh, saying how the women are always scared when Sackerson gets loose. Yeah, I'd be scared. This is a massive European bear with big teeth, huge claws that's been tortured and beaten and attacked by dogs. And now it's got a chance to be free and do what it wants. Yeah, I, I, I fancy the bear more than the people running away from it. So it made more sense to have a bear suddenly appear on stage in the winter's tale. So it's almost like a meta reference uh, at the moment. You know, a bear could be wandering around outside the theatre and suddenly got in. But, and obviously there was opportunity because there are so many bears around. They could have got a real bear and got it to chase an actor off stage. But I don't think anyone would be mad enough to risk that. And I think there would have been quite a bit of competition amongst the actors as to who got to wear the bear costume and be the bear and chase the other actor off stage. So I think it made a lot more sense at the time. When you watch it today, it is a bit of a... Yeah, a moment, a step back and a kind of, okay, bears, fine, let's just go with it. (laughs) Yeah, I I mean, I think that makes a lot of sense. I also think that uh, competing to who gets to be the bear to chase someone off stage, I can see that definitely happening today. Um, Oh, yeah. And and back then, I'm sure mm. there was, yeah, many fights over who got to be the bear. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad you've explained that one, though, because I do think that today that is a context so far removed from what we currently experience that it's particularly difficult to understand definitely and 
reading more about bear baiting and how popular it was back in the day, um, it makes so much more sense of a lot of other Shakespeare's plays as well. Things like Twelfth Night is basically a bear baiting play. The whole thing, poor Malvolio is the bear and there's all of these dogs attacking him from every corner. It's So yeah, there's an awful lot of subtext and references that I'm sure we're missing uh, yeah, four centuries later simply because mm-hmm. we don't know about those references. Um, you know, we're not living that life. Mm-hmm. Well, in this massive project of distillation of understanding all of these nuances uncovering them really um, and bringing them to us uh, to help us understand them obviously I found quite a lot of things surprising in the book and kind of went oh I didn't realize that or okay that makes more sense now Um, but in this process of going through all of the detail and distilling it is there anything in particular that jumped out at you as a surprise? What really impressed me, it's always a worry when you start on a project like this. It's like, I'd always like Shakespeare plays. They're always good entertainment. And I realised I'd been missing a lot because, you know, I'm not alive in Elizabethan England. Uh, So, but you do worry when you go into this, if I'm going to go into so much detail, is it just, is it just going to wear thin? Am I going to get bored with this? Am I going to lose respect for this amazing playwright? And I didn't. It grew so much more. And my what I hadn't realised before was how good of a theatrical technician Shakespeare was. So just in terms of the staging of these plays, the theatres back then, they were so different to modern theatres. There's no curtain that comes down. There's not really... So you can't shift around uh, sets and decor and props and things like that. You have to go with what's available and what you can quickly move on and off stage without too many people noticing and distracting from the action. And to do that well and to still get a coherent story that's understandable with all of these subtleties and all of these subtexts, that takes effort. And he's brilliant at it. One of the most brilliant examples of this for me is in Julius Caesar. So Julius Caesar is stabbed 33 times, according to Shakespeare. 10 too many, according to historical records, but never mind, 33, we'll go with it. Um, And obviously, this happens in the middle of the play. And the second half of the play, Julius Caesar, the title character, is completely absent. It's just the fallout from this terrible event. But 33 stab rooms, you've got to see someone stabbed on stage. Your audience is going to want to see lots of blood but you've got all of these costumes that you've got to protect because washing out blood on stage, that's not easy in Elizabethan England. So you have to control it. So there's this brilliant line um, of stoop Romans, stoop, something like that, and cover your hands up to the elbows with blood. It is a stage direction, but a character is saying it and directing all of the conspirators where to apply the blood to their body so it won't get on their costumes. It also means that all of the guilty parties are literally left with blood on their hands. So you know everyone who has contributed to this death and this terrible event. Um, And then most of the actors are cleared off stage. You've still got uh, a dead body on stage and you can put a pre-blooded sheet over them so you don't get more blood on the body. 
and you have a couple of speeches that last about oh, 40, 50 lines, whilst everyone is backstage wiping all the blood off and cleaning up ready for the next scene. And then those two actors go off and they've got about 40 lines to clean up whilst everyone else comes back on stage and says their bit. And it sounds, when you count out all the lines and you see what they're doing, it's it feels very artificial because you've got to give actors time to change their costumes, tidy themselves up, get ready for the next scene. But when you see the play, you don't even notice. It is just a continuation of the story and a reflection on Julius Caesar's life and the significance of this event. And it is brilliantly worked out. Mm. I'm really glad that you mentioned um, that example because I also found it really interesting. Um, One of my earliest exposures to performing Shakespeare was in fact doing the Mark Antony speech. Um, And it was really interesting to, on the one hand, memorize all these lines and see all of these different references and learn about what they all meant, but then also to perform it and go, "Wait wait a second, this whole thing actually can be done with essentially three or four people. Um, and kind of coming in and out. And wow, what a difference between what's on the page and how it's actually acted out. So in a very small way, um, that was one of my first introductions to Shakespeare. Um, And reading in the book this detail about the counting of the lines and how long it takes to wash things off and versus putting blood on, etc. was a really fascinating kind of insight into the behind the scenes, really, of the play, but also kind of imagining what you must have been doing kind of sat there counting out the lines and figuring this out. (laughs) Um, Well, I'd love to, the book obviously came out in 2020, so it's very much available for people to read and get into those appendices if they want or read about different poisons that he may or may not have described accurately. Um, But presumably you are not still sat in the archive um, reading, counting lines and reading about Shakespeare's poisons, or maybe you are. Is there anything about your current work you'd like to share with us? Uh, Currently, I have just finished, it's just been published, I've done a similar thing to what I did for Shakespeare, Um, may he forgive me, I apologise, and I've now done it to the world of James Bond, so I've looked through the science, the tech, and a lot of the deaths or near deaths in the James Bond universe, and explored the scientific implications and context of what's going on in that world. Fascinating. All right, then. Is there a next project or something you want to work on after you get a bit of a break um, from this that you'd like to tease us with further? Or should we go off and read about Um, Shakespeare and James Bond? I'm at the stage of needing to lay down in a darkened room for a a few months to recover from it all. But after that, so many ideas. I don't know what (laughs) I'm going to get to do next. Amazing. Well, it will be very exciting for us, I'm sure, when we find out. And in the meantime, we can obviously go read your current book um, about James Bond, but also read the book that we've been discussing, which again is titled Death by Shakespeare, Snake Bites, Stabbings and Broken Hearts, published by Bloomsbury in 2020. Dr. Catherine Harkup, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Thank you very much. This is great fun.